So Sarah and I, um, we talk to our kids about God a lot. We talk about God a lot in our house. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we're always having them read little Bible stories. We've each got their own little children's Bibles. Uh, we have them watch videos and cartoons about Jesus and, and heroes of the Bible. And, you know, kids' minds are, are wonders to behold, aren't they? Um, you know, the way, the way kids think, I love it. It's so out of the box because they haven't yet been sort of, you know, squashed by the pressures of life and, you know, got all grown up about things. They, they just, they're always, they have such vivid imaginations and, you know, about what is possible. And they ask some of the, some of the most profound questions. You know, just the other day, Vespa, you know, she's just turned four and she asked, is Satan capable of love? But she also recently, I forget if it was Dove or Vespa, um, asked this recently. She said, Daddy, where does God live? To which I responded, well, during the winter, he lives in Florida. (laughs) He's got a nice condo there. uh, (laughs) Where does God live? It's a profound question, is it? It's It's a childlike question. Where does, where does God live? And you know, we've, we've been in this sermon series for a few weeks now, um, called Finding God. And we've been discussing, uh, you know, first of all, the importance, how important it is to seek God. To seek God. It really is the primary goal of our lives. It's not your career. It's not your family. It's a, no, seeking and finding God really is the most important thing we can do with our lives. And, um, we, you know, last week, we talked about how we can find God's fingerprints and evidence of his closeness to us through through the created world and the skies and the heavens above us. Remember, we were looking at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. And if you remember, I talked about this thing called God's imminence. God's imminence. It's this, his closeness to us, him being present in this world and in our lives. And yet as, as close as God is to us, and as present and as involved in this world and our lives as he is, he's still God. He's still God. And there is a, a dimension to God that, that is, is separate from us, separate from his creation, holy above, beyond Anything and everything because he's God. This, this concept of, of God being separate from us, his, his otherness, his being above and beyond his creation, it's what's known as God's transcendence. God transcends his creation. So, where does God live? Is God far away? Does he live far away from us? You know, many of us, we have a sense that God, God lives up there. Yeah, Do you, you find yourself just actually looking up sometimes when you're praying and things like that, right? And, and you might hear phrases like, oh, I'm going to send a few prayers up to the big guy upstairs. You've heard people say that? Or maybe you found yourself saying, God is looking down upon us. 
this idea, he's, he's above us, he's looking down on us, right? How many times have we said that about a, uh, a loved one who's gone home to be with the Lord? You know, I've caught myself saying, oh, I, I know mum's looking down on us. There's this idea that somehow they're up there with God. Because everybody has, has a, a sense, an innate sense, that God is somehow beyond us. Everybody has a conception of God. You know, even atheists who don't believe in God have an idea in their mind of who God is or what God is. There's a, 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 theolo- a theologian, he was a former Bishop of Durham, a brilliant New Testament scholar by the name, scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. Um, he also goes by Tom Wright. And uh, Tom Wright, he talks about his interactions with uh, atheist students at Oxford University. He was a chaplain there at Oxford University for a while. And um, when he encountered an atheist student, they would tell, you know, he'd be the chaplain and they would tell him, well, actually, you know, I don't believe in God. And he would ask them which God they don't believe in. It's a good question to ask. When somebody says to you, I don't believe in God, you say, oh, really? What kind of God, which God do you not believe in? Because when you think about it, whether you believe in God or not, you have an idea of what God is. And this would always catch the students off guard, Tom Wright would say. And, you know, he said they'd sort of think for a moment, and then they'd rattle off a few phrases about, you know, the God they said they didn't believe in. You know, a being who who lives in the sky, looks disapprovingly at us, uh, does the odd miracle, sends people to hell, etc. And Tom Wright would turn around to them and say, well, I don't believe in that God either. And for a moment they'd look at him and think, you're one of those atheist chaplains. Because they have him. And he said, no, 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 let me be clear. I believe in the God revealed in and through Jesus of Nazareth. We all have a concept of God. And we all in some way imagine where he lives, where he dwells. And you know, as, as Christians, we, we know God is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, as believers, we know that the Holy Spirit resides in us. When we, are, when we become believers, when we give our lives to Jesus, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We, each and every one of you, if you are a believer, you have a seal upon you right now. That is not visible to the human eye, but you have the seal of the Holy Spirit, the mark of the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we hear the mark of the beast, but we have the mark of the Holy Spirit upon us that identifies us as one of God's. But Paul says we are, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, which is why we always need to be very careful what we do with our bodies. And in John 14, 23, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So as believers, we have the living God residing in us. This would be an example of God's imminence that we talked about last week and that I just mentioned, his imminence. But there's also this sense that God is is out there. He's over and above and beyond us. We, we, we have that sense within us. And that's not just a sense or an intuition. No, folks, that, that's biblical. That's biblical. 
Because there are many places in scripture where God is described as being other to us. To being separate over his creation. To transcending us. And our scripture passage today from Isaiah chapter 40 is one of those places. Now let's take a brief look through that passage. In verse 21, Isaiah asks a, he asks a series of questions, but it's also a statement. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? In other words, how can you not get this? Because in all those questions that God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, really what he's saying is, if you think carefully about the origins of the world and the creation around you, it points towards a creator. God is saying it points to him. The first part of verse 22 says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a grasshopper. But notice it says God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Again, this speaks of God's transcendence, his otherness. And by the way, isn't that interesting? The circle of the earth. He's God. He knows the earth's not flat. He knew back in 8th century B.C. But God is he's above the world. And from his vantage point, the people of the earth, including those who think they're ever so important, are like grasshoppers. Now, to be clear, it's, it's not that God thinks we are grasshoppers. Okay? Or that he treats us like grasshoppers. But what's going on here is it's a comparison between the awesome majesty and the magnitude of God compared to how small and relatively insignificant we are when put side by side with God. And verse 23 and 4, they really nail home this reality. Listen to the words again. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, then he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. This is a pointed reminder that one, God is always in control. No matter what's going on in the world, he ultimately controls all world events. And two, the mighty and the, the grand plans that the rulers of this world have, that the, the world leaders have, the politicians, the World Economic Forum, those who meet at Davos every year, all those plans, those grand schemes, those ambitions, those desires for power, their goals, their agendas, their ideological pursuits, all of that compared to God is nothing. It's like chaff blown by the wind. It's here today. And it's gone tomorrow. And I want to pause there for a moment. And I want to point out something to us that actually should give us great, great comfort. Because if you are, if you're feeling discouraged by what's going on in the world right now, what's going on around us, that the moral decay and the rot that we are seeing, I want you to just remember that God is still on the throne. And he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. God plays the long game and his will will be done. 
Nothing and nobody comes close to God. To whom will you compare me, says verse 25. Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Nobody comes close to God. Because God is so above and beyond us. And you know, sometimes we can, we can lose sight of that. We can lose sight of that. This other, otherness of God. You know, I, you know me, I'm all for, we want a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. We absolutely do. And God desires that with us. But sometimes we can get a little too Jesus is my boyfriend. And we can lose some of the reverence and the awe and the respect that is due to God Almighty. Here in verse 25, God is called the Holy One. God is holy. And his holiness is part of his otherness, of what makes him different from you and I. God is morally perfect. He's morally perfect. God can never do anything wrong. He can never make a mistake. He can never do evil. God can never be unjust or unfair. God can never do anything that falls short of moral perfection because he is the essence and very definition of moral perfection. He is holy. You know, one of the things I like to uh, do with our kids at the end of the day is tuck them into bed and I read them a, read them a story. You know, a little short story. And recently we got a hold of the, the whole Mr. Men series. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mr. Men series, but um, it's a whole series of books of little characters. Like, so you've got Mr. Happy, Mr. Strong, Mr. Greedy, Mr. Grumpy, Mr. Fussy. You know, all, and, and you know, and it's, it, they're really funny. They've got a little bit of humor in them. And it's really cool because they address behavioral issues with children. You know, Mr. Uppity. And there's one character there called... Mr. Perfect, who turns out is not so perfect after all. But do you know what it would be like to meet someone who is morally perfect? Interesting, wouldn't it? Because I think what we would find is that so many of their values and their morals and their ethics would contradict our worlds. They would be offensive to many just like many of our Christian values are becoming more and more offensive to many people today. Just like Jesus was offensive to many while he was bodily on earth, so much so that it got him killed. And Jesus was the only morally perfect human being who has walked to this earth because he is God. He is holy. Last week I, I mentioned, and I mentioned earlier today, we talked about the heavens declaring the glory of God. How the heavens themselves are not God, but that they point us to his glory. And verse 26 here in Isaiah 40, it, it reaffirms that. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Here 
Isaiah is, is pointing out that the starry hosts are not to be worshipped. I mean, they're not even self-existent because they were created by God and they are subject to God's will like all of his creation. Now, it's important to, to understand that verse in context. Because the prophet Isaiah, he was, he was writing this in the 8th century B.C., and Isaiah was God's prophet to God's people, the Israelites. And the Israelites were surrounded by pagan nations. Okay, God has set the Israelites aside to be his holy people. He would bring forth the Messiah, bring forth Jesus. But they are surrounded by pagan nations. And, and the Lord God is telling them all the time, you've got to stay away from their customs and what they're doing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pollute you. It's going to corrupt you. And they're surrounded by cultures like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Canaanites. And to all those pagan nations, the heavens were a visible representation of the gods. So they literally worshipped the starry host. And the problem is, or was, Israel would get caught up in this too. They'd see other cultures doing it and think, well, that seems like a good idea. It's one way to get popular. Let's, let's join in here. They would be influenced and sucked into the cultures that they were surrounded by. It's a warning for us too. But listen to 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to begin at verse 15. It's also in your pew Bible if you want to grab it. 306 is the page. But if not, just follow along here. It says, They rejected, they being Israel, they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with his ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became Worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. And here it is, listen, they bowed down to all the starry hosts. This is Israel. And they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So we see there that Israel got caught up in all the pagan practices of the cultures around them, worshipping the starry host. And God has been telling them, what's he been telling them? Do not do as they do. Do not do as they do. And the warning is no different for us today as Christians. I don't know if you've noticed, but we are, we're seeing a big uptick in people exploring pagan practices like Wicca and witchcraft and occultic things. Christians even are doing this. And it is all tied into actually the message of the sermon series, which is, is finding God. People are looking to these other practices. They're, they're trying to find God in their own way, in the wrong way, the misguided way. But God is saying, do not do as they do. We don't worship God's creation. That includes our bodies, by the way. We don't worship our bodies. Now we worship the Creator who is over and above and beyond this creation, who transcends us all. 
But you know, we still haven't answered the question, have we? Where does God live? Where does God live? Now, a standard answer, most people, if you were just to ask a random person on the street, where do you think God lives? They'd say, well, God lives in heaven. But which heaven? Do you know that the Bible tells us there are three heavens? The Bible tells us there are three heavens. And if you count the new heaven and earth that will come when the Lord returns, that will be four. But let's turn to, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's page uh, 941 in the Pew Bible if you prefer having a hard copy. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to begin at verse 2 through verse 4. And it reads like this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. It's a fascinating little passage, isn't it? Paul says, I know a man. Well, Paul is being modest here. He's really referring to himself in the third person. And he's doing that, I think, to stay humble and modest about this incredible mystical experience that he has he's gone through. But here he, he details a mystical experience of being, of being caught up, of being raptured into the third heaven. He says he was caught up into the third heaven. And then a verse later, he says he was caught up to paradise. Now, when you look at the language in the Greek, the original Greek that Paul was was writing in here, you can see that he's using a technique called parallelism. So when he talks about the third heaven and then talks about paradise, he's actually talking about the same place. This is where God lives. This is where the Father is enthroned in glory. You see, when the Bible talks about the heavens, it, it can mean one of, at least, one of three realms, right? It can mean the earth and the sky and the atmosphere that we can all see with our, our naked eyes. That would be the first heaven. It can also refer to, to outer space, where the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets are. That would be the second heaven. And then there is here this, the third heaven, paradise. It's, it's God's dwelling place. It's where he is enthroned in, in glory. And, you know, when we sang earlier in Revelation song, and we were singing about the wonder and glory of that throne room. And that song has been directly inspired by Revelation chapter 4. And I want to take us to Revelation chapter 4 for a moment. And um, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Actually, the whole chapter is worth reading. It's incredible. We're just going to read verses 1 to 6 to give you a little sampling here, a little taste. Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, 
and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. What an incredible picture of God's transcendence, his majesty, his wonder, reminding us that he is Lord, that he is king, that he is above, beyond and over us. So what does this all mean for us? Well, it's a reminder that in our relationship with God, we have to hold in tension both God's transcendence and his imminence. In other words, his closeness to us and his otherness and his beyondness. I don't know if that's a word. We know that our God is a personal God who loves us and cares beyond measure about each and every one of us. He's revealed himself to us and and wants to be known by us. But on the other hand, we have to balance that with the fact that God is also bigger than our wildest imaginings. That he's also separate and above his creation. Last week, I encourage you to look for God's fingerprints in creation. And I hope you've been blessed this past week just looking for those fingerprints, those those signs that point to God. But this week, I I want to encourage us to never lose sight of, of God's majesty, of his otherness. God is near us, but he's also beyond us. He's creator, we are his creation. He is completely holy, morally perfect. We are sinners saved and made holy because of him. And you know what? That's the most amazing thing about all of this. Is that despite God being so above and beyond us, despite us being like grasshoppers, he became one of us. He sent his son Jesus who lived that sinless, that morally perfect life that none of us could. And willingly, like we sang this morning, sacrificed himself on the cross to satisfy and pay the price for God's perfect justice. So that one day we will dwell where God dwells. We will live where God lives. Let's pray.